Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Packed Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. On the show this week, interim results from BP fail to please investors. I think what investors are looking for is when is the moment when we can say that BP has gotten beyond the Gulf of Mexico incident and has a strategy to become a post-Gulf of Mexico company. It's not there yet. And Bob Dolly, I think, doesn't have a strategy. And I don't think he convinced investors yesterday that he does. Solar power. How economic is it? Solar is getting closer and closer to retail-level grid parity. And once it reaches the retail level, then solar will be able to develop without much incentive from the government. Diamond company De Beers has a new chief executive. He has zero experience in diamond mining, which is one of the interesting things about this appointment. He comes from a hard industry background in trains and cars, 30 years experience. And we end as we started with more results, this time from UK utility Centrica. The analysts believe that by Centrica's standards, they're going to report that they had a pretty poor first half. MF Global think that operating profits will have fallen by 19%. Deutsche Bank put the figure at 17%. So these are pretty big falls. Let's start the show with BP and disappointing interim results. Joining me in the studio is Lex writer Vincent Boland. Vincent, thanks for joining us. On BP, Bob Dudley, the chief executive, yesterday announced the company's interim results, which disappointed investors, mainly because they missed the analyst profit forecasts, and the share price dropped more than 2.5% on the day. Now, given that the share price has been quite anemic since the beginning of the year, I guess that's not something that Dudley would have wanted to have seen. What's the issue facing BP at the moment? Is it still the Gulf of Mexico accident or are there other concerns around? I think the big issue facing BP is that it does not have a strategy. Clearly, the Gulf of Mexico incident remains a colossal event and still a very live issue. But BP has booked $41 billion of provisions for it. A lot of the costs have been incurred. So it's a diminishing incident from the point of view of BP's financials, right? And yet it seems as if the company is still kind of mesmerized by it from a performance point of view almost and from an operational point of view. So it clearly dominates everything. And I think that what investors are looking for is when is the moment when we can say that BP has has gotten beyond the Gulf of Mexico incident and has a strategy to become a post-Gulf of Mexico company? And it's not there yet. And Bob Dolly, I think, doesn't have a strategy. And I don't think he convinced investors yesterday that he does. Yesterday at the press conference, he was using the phrase that 2011 is the year of consolidation for BP. This is the year when they get back onto a secure financial footing. They're still trying to sort out investigations in the US. Are investors being a little bit unfair? Do they just want to see a short-term boost to the share price? I think he made a very interesting point yesterday when he talked about the desire for urgency balanced by the need for patience. And obviously, you know, every CEO, I think, faces that in the course of his day-to-day job. I mean, BP has actually stabilized from a financial perspective. I mean, the company was big enough that it could swallow a $41 billion hit without becoming overgeared or having to borrow excessively or really demolishing the, the sort of value case for the company. But I think investors' beef really is that the lost value as a result of the Gulf of Mexico, they're, they're not making it back. What are his options? 
he can continue to sell what you might call peripheral assets to raise the money to pay for the Gulf of Mexico incident, which they've done $25 billion out of a $30 billion portfolio sale. But I think he needs to be more radical. I mean, two things that I think BP should be looking at. One is what to do in Russia, because it's I think it's becalmed there now. And the breakdown of the Rosneft alliance, I think, asks major questions about BP's strategy in Russia. Should BP actually be looking to exit Russia? That's one issue. And the other is, is BP the kind of company that should be doing a ConocoPhillips? Should it be splitting upstream and downstream? But I think that whatever he does, I think BP's strategy needs to be pretty radical if it's to recover the momentum and the reputation it had before the Gulf of Mexico crisis for actually being the leader in a lot of areas of the oil and gas industry. And just one final question. How did he come across yesterday? Because certainly in the past few months, the company seems a little bit to have lost its confidence almost since the Rosneft alliance and Russia failed to happen. And certainly the last time I saw him in public seemed more rattled by questions from the press. Well, what, what sense did you get from him? I thought he was a bit defensive, actually. I was impressed by how short he kept his answers on the whole. But I think the Generally speaking, the tone was a bit defensive and the body language in answering a lot of the questions was, I don't really want to go there. So I'm going to say one sentence and then let's move on to the next question. And I didn't get the impression that he was particularly comfortable in that arena. And I was a bit surprised, actually, because Bob Duddy is a very cool guy. Which maybe tells you something about why investors are also slightly worried. I will keep watching. Yes, I think so. What happens. Thank you very much. Let's move to solar power and the question of economics. Earlier today... Polita Clark, the FT's environment correspondent, spoke to the chief executive of Canadian Solar, one of the largest companies in the industry, Dr Sean Q, and asked him to explain how cuts in government incentives have affected the sector. I think it's a plus and minus. On the plus side, it reflects that the cost of solar products have reduced so much so that the government can already reduce the incentive for solar, but the industry can still survive and uh, prosper, which means solar is getting closer and closer to retail-level grid parity. And once it reaches the retail-level grid parity, then solar will be able to develop and to grow without much incentive from the government. So that's the plus side. On the minus side, of course, the incentive reduction, it gives everybody in industry a temporary pressure, and we all have to further reduce the cost and so that we can keep competitive in this marketplace. And just speaking of those costs, as you say, we've seen these enormous falls in the price of solar modules. How much longer do you think we're going to see these prices falling? As a matter of fact, I think the cost of solar energy will continue the cost reduction curve in the next three to five years until it reach a great parity. So I think there's still quite some room to go because solar have achieved the scale of economy and there's a lot of investment which helped to drive down the cost. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that the customer have to wait because the return, the IRR of solar investment, depend on the feed-in tariff provided by the government. And every year, this feed-in tariff is going to be reduced. Well, just speaking of those feed-in tariffs, we've seen a change here in the UK in the scheme here. What effect do you think that's going to have on the solar industry here? On one hand, it's uh, unfortunate because the UK's market was pretty small comparing with Germany and other European countries. So the market just started to develop last year after the feed-in tariff policy was announced. But in less than one year, the policy got changed. So the industry doesn't have enough time to fully develop so that it can stand on its own feet. 
So our view is that this policy change is too early and too quick. But on the other hand, the policy change only affects the large-scale solar system. For the small solar system, you still get the previous feeding tariff. So we we'll just have to put more attention to the small and distributed generation. That was Dr. Q in Ontario, Canada, talking to Polita Clark. Let's move to the new head of Diamond Company, De Beers. Joining me in the studio is FT mining correspondent William McNamara. Now, Will, you met Philippe Mellier yesterday on Tuesday, the first chief executive from De Beers who's come from the outside. What's he like and is he a proper chief executive or does he defer a lot to Nicky Oppenheimer, the current head of the family of the business? Well, he's certainly cautious. That's not entirely out of place since it was his second day on the job. I think um, I saw him at about his 24th hour as a fully paid up CEO of a company. He has zero experience in diamond mining, which is one of the interesting things about this appointment. He comes from a hard industry background and trains and cars, 30 years experience. And as much as you can say that, that diamond mining and marketing is an industrial process like any other, it is a infamously different and closed industry that has been characterized until about 10 years ago by uh, careerist De Beers chief executives who joined the company in Johannesburg in their early 20s and then hopefully by their 50s become CEO. What does he bring to the party then? Process management, what he touts is his ability to think outside the box. De Beers is trying to grow, which is a bit awkward because in the past decade it's transformed itself from a quasi-monopoly to still the most important company in an increasingly competitive market. So they have about 35% of market share now, and Mr. Melier says my mandate is basically to grow the company, which is a bit delicate. There's none of the antitrust concerns that we saw a decade ago, and there are a lot more significant threats. So reading in between the lines of what he was saying, there might have been a complacency at the company bred from a 100 years of knowing that they are the top dog. And now you have El Rosa, the state-owned Russian rival, actually pulling ahead of it in production last year, slightly. Companies like Rio Tinto and BHP Billiton having, you know, significant diamond departments themselves. And this industry is looking out at 10 years when diamond prices are expected to soar because there's simply not enough mines to meet supply. There is an imperative for a company like De Beers to make good on its incumbent position and to expand. And you just mentioned the difficulties about production. There's, there's quite a bit of industrial action going on. Yes, indeed. Uh, De De Beers mine workers are among the very, very many South African mine workers who are demanding higher wages, often at a rate of about 14% compared to South African inflation of 5%. It's happening all around the world and in Chile and Indonesia. Metals prices are booming. The companies are getting rich. And workers on the coal face are saying, I want more. Thank you. And let's move to the UK for our final topic interim results from Utility Centrica. Joining me in the studio is FT Energy correspondent David Blair. Now, Centrica, the the owner of British Gas, is reporting its interim results tomorrow on Thursday. How are they going to be, David? Well, the analysts believe that by Centrica's standards, they're going to report that they had a pretty poor first half. MF Global think that operating profits will have fallen by 19%. Deutsche Bank put the figure at 17%. So these are pretty big falls. How does this fit in with my gas bill and my electricity bill has gone up quite substantially in the past six months? I would have thought that the companies would be making quite a bit of money. 
Well, the residential energy supply arm of British Gas is the part of the business that's performing worst at the moment. We understand that it actually made a loss in May and June. And the forecast is that tomorrow, Centrica will announce that that arm of the business saw operating profits fall by anything from 50 to 55 cent compared with the first half in 2010. Now, a couple of notes of cautions. They had an exceptionally good first half of 2010 because of an unusual combination of cold weather, high demand and low wholesale prices. Now, they were never going to beat that. They were always going to be below that performance in the first half of this year. And it turns out that in the first half of this year, they've had the opposite phenomenon. They've had pretty mild weather, low demand and high wholesale prices. And all that has combined to put the squeeze on their residential business in a pretty serious way. So quite unusually, if they do post poor results, is that good news for them from a public perspective in the sense that poor results mean they don't get kicked by the market? Well, here's the paradox. When they announced a very healthy result for the full year in 2010, which was a 29% rise in operating profits, their shares fell. So tomorrow, when they announce a much more modest profits performance, it's quite possible that the market may react favourably because of the unique political sensitivity attached to energy companies in this country. We should, of course, stress two things. First of all, we're just talking about expectations here. We haven't seen the real results. And secondly, all the expectations are, of course, Centrica will have remained a very profitable company. We're just talking about lower profits. And as as you just touched on, there's quite a bit of government scrutiny on on the big six utilities at the moment. What's the relationship like at the moment between the utilities and the government? And is there pressure from the government to curb prices for retailers? They're under greater political pressure now than they have been for quite some time. The Labour Party has officially adopted a policy which would effectively force the big six to break up and cease to be integrated energy companies. Labour also wants them officially referred to the Competition Commission. Now, of course, Labour are in opposition, so you could say that they can be ignored, but the time horizon that energy companies operate under goes well beyond the next UK election. So the Labour Party's views can't be entirely discounted. As for the government, the government has been criticising them pretty strongly whenever they put up household bills. So in a sense, they're caught in this incredible bind where the government wants them to spend £200 billion on renewing Britain's energy infrastructure, as we've discussed often before. But at the same time, the politicians reserve the right to kick the energy companies whenever they put up their bills. So they're damned whatever they do. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Vincent Boland, William McNamara, Polita Clark and David Blair in the studio in London and Dr Sean Q in Ontario. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filotrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.